playing God is actually the highest expression of human nature. The urge is to improve ourselves, to master our environment, and to set our children on the best path possible have been the fundamental driving forces of all human history. Without these urges to play God, the world as we know it wouldn't exist today. Rameh Nam. Hello everybody, welcome to this, which is probably the most important episode that I'll ever record for the 2045 podcast. Now, indeed, I'll be answering questions such as why is the podcast called 2045? Why that number? Why a number in the first place? You see, the answer to this question is Ray Kurzweil. He is an engineer, an inventor, a futurist, a founder, among many other things, and a person that I of course admire a lot. You see, he wrote a book called The Singularity Is Near, one of my favorite books ever that goes from exponential technologies to existential questions and even existential threats. A lot of the topics that, if you know me, I love, and if you've been following the podcast for a while, then you also know that we talk a lot about these topics. So Ray created this theory, this concept, called the singularity. It refers to a period in human history in which the pace of progress will accelerate itself. We will have the exponential growth explosive innovation and technological advancements that we cannot even imagine right now. As a result, and paraphrasing Ray's words, the universe itself will come to life. Matter will be saturated with intelligence, and it will be such a beautiful thing to see. As you may have already noticed in this episode, we'll, you know, talk about the singularity is near from different points of view and yeah, just different aspects. So we'll kind of get technical with exponential technologies, but we'll also get kind of romantic with the idea of the singularity and existential questions. But you know, that's the beauty of the book itself, in my opinion. And as a reminder, I'll be going through my article, Till the Heat Death of the Universe, which I wrote in my Medium blog. My Medium blog, in case you're interested in checking it out, is sophiash.medium.com. I'll link it in the description below. Again, if you're interested in reading it, I write about many different topics, especially biotechnology, but also about personal development, success, existential questions, and many other things. Now let's get started because the singularity is near. So that was kind of an introduction to the introduction. (laughs) What I mean is that right now I'll be just giving you an overview of the book and why I like it. So you see, lately I've been in love with the word, the singularity. How beautiful is it to think that our universe could have arisen from something called a singularity and that we are right now heading towards a technological singularity in which the basic meaning of being human could drastically change forever. Mathematicians sometimes define a singularity as the value that transcends any finite limitations. 
Physicists describe it as the center of a black hole, and now Ray Kurzweil uses it to describe the historical phenomenon that we'll be living, you guessed it, in the year 2045. Just to get you all excited, here are some predictions that Ray mentions in his book. And it's important to say, we'll talk about this later on, but these predictions aren't just random. They're just, you know, something that Ray came up with. It's not like he has a magic ball. These are actually based on his models for predicting the future. And he's actually come up with some interesting things that are already happening in the present. He predicted them in the future. So for the actual future, like I'm, I'm right now in the year 2021. So, so you know what the future is like for me. Um, he says that we will have effective software models of human intelligence by the mid 2020s. He says that Moore's law is not the end because before the year 2020, other technologies will be under development, like 3D molecular computing. Actually, a lot of people don't know about it, but it's true. <laughs> Another one is that by the end of this decade, computers will disappear as individual pieces of hardware, and they will merge with our eyeglasses, clothing, and more. Finally, well, you know, he has a lot of predictions, but finally, to get you excited, after the singularity, there will be no distinction between human and machine, or between physical and virtual reality. Something that, in my opinion, we're starting to see right now, like the coronavirus pandemic actually, I think, accelerated a lot the pace at which we connect more. Actually, this is something we we saw with Giovanni Herreri's books as well. He, well, is also another author that I really admire. And he said that in the future, we would spend more time connected to an electronic device than disconnected from it. And I've been reflecting a lot on this lately, and I found it to be true. Maybe not yet, but we are really close to, to that future that both Ray and Yuval talk about. Now that we are all kind of in this mood of futurism and the singularity, now that we are all excited about virtual reality and being connected, you know. Let's talk about Ray's models. How does he predict the future? You see, probably you haven't heard of a lot of people who confidently say that humans will become immortal by the end of the century. Well, at least I haven't heard of many people who say that. Or that we will be able to upload our brains to some sort of computer before the year 2050, which is what Ray estimates. Why? Well, because most scientists and even technologists are quite conservative in their predictions. The question is, are they too conservative? So far, we have experienced a rate of progress in which the present looks pretty much like the past, which look pretty much like the past again. And this is why, you know, we are not that excited about the future. It's like, yeah, we now have iPhones and we now have, um, I don't know, virtual reality um, headsets, but it's not that big of a deal. It's like normal, you know, it's a normal rate of progress. But, you know, that's because we are only considering a linear model of progress in which change is constant. Have you ever heard the phrase, the only constant is change? Well, that's true. But what if change 
could also change. That's kind of the way I see exponential models, exponential graphs, and exponential advancements or progress. So it's like that um, quality of whatever you want to call it, you know, of technology or, or time or space that lets us change the actual rate at which change is being made. That's why I say like change is changing itself. And so according to Ray, in order to make predictions in the 21st century, we should take into account an exponential graph because otherwise we will be underestimating for the long term and overestimating for the short term. This means we will be overestimating what we can do in five years, but underestimating what we can do in 20 or 50 years. I kind of think of this example when humans used to think that we would have flying cars by the year 2000. And that's kind of where we are going. Like, I know a couple of companies who are trying to work on that. Maybe not precisely flying cars, but, you know, automated vehicles or electric vehicles or vehicles that, um, I don't know, are powered by the sun and so on. Now, what we got to think of, again, is that we don't have flying cars all over the place right now. But we do have artificial intelligence. We do have Facebook. We do have biotechnologies that allow us to create vaccines, that allow us to genetically modify ourselves, even when, again, it's not mainstream. So to be clear, the singularity as a concept also encompasses the idea that the pace at which progress is being made is accelerating itself. Change is itself changing, which will lead us to a drastic change that few can imagine. According to Ray, at today's pace, we will experience 100 years of progress in 25 years of calendar days, meaning just 25 normal years, you know? I know this may get a little confusing, so I'll rephrase that. In the future, we will experience 100 years of progress in 25 years. That's what the concept of the singularity is all about. That's what changing change is all about. And this is also why it's so exciting to me because the singularity is near, like this idea, the title of the book, what it's trying to tell us is that most of us who are living right now, who are alive these days in 2021, will have the chance to leave at least a part of the singularity or will be part of that exponential graph. Maybe not uh, the year 2045 itself, but maybe a little bit before and we'll get to see amazing things. The reason why this in particular may be the most exciting time in history to be alive is because we are just starting to see the knee of the curve. You know, in an exponential graph, you have like kind of the asymptote area in which nothing interesting is happening. Like there's barely progress if we see it in terms of progress. But then, like, in just, uh, let's say, 10, 20 years, we are going to be able to see the knee of the curve in which we'll see that drastic change, that aggressive innovation from, I don't know, having Facebook to having brain-computer interfaces, meaning being able to 
fuse ourselves with our computers. You know, that's the kind of things that we're gonna be able to see. Error number two that a lot of futurists make when trying to predict the future, interestingly, is that innovation arises from the intersection of different technologies. I've probably mentioned this before in other episodes, but it's easier to innovate when you have knowledge in more than one field. So, for example, scientists who only know about molecular biology may not be as legit as people who know about molecular biology and can analyze the data with artificial intelligence. This also means that the problems that we're clearly going to create because of any technologies, like you know, cars, they create a pollution, or biology, a lot of viruses could arise, are going to be solved by other technologies. Let's take another um, example. So, a lot of people are concerned about extending longevity because of overpopulation and resource scarcity and so on. But hey, are we really taking into account that Elon Musk is planning to go to Mars very soon? Are we taking into account that we are going to be able to create cheap materials with nanotechnology? 3D printed houses, among many other innovations. In summary, for the introduction, the singularity is incredibly exciting because A, we are just about to see it. We are just about to see the drastic change in the world and the universe. B, because that change is going to be explosive. We are going to experience way more technological and scientific progress in less amount of time. And C, because intersecting innovations aren't only going to solve the world's biggest problems, but they're also going to create an incredibly exciting future. Now, that was a very long introduction, but I now want to tell you about the history of tomorrow. Ray talks about the history of the universe going from molecules and energy to the singularity in a model of the epochs. So the epochs are basically periods in history that lasted for even thousands of years, I don't know, millions of years, even billions of years, <laughs> in which pretty amazing things happened in terms of progress. But now that I think about it well, it also has to do a lot with dataism. Ray begins by saying that the universe started with patterns of matter and energy that represented information. You know, it's kind of the chemistry and physics level or face of the universe. In other words, the first epoch is about chemistry and physics representing information. Epoch two is when life arises. You know, there are many theories for the origins of life and some of them have to do with the religion, but in the singular Near, we talk about um, more of a scientific approach, and so we say that life arose from these molecules. They kind of took a um, more complex shape, and it allowed for the reproduction of organisms that were made out of carbon. That's already very interesting. Just imagine going from molecules that were kind of messy, not really having an order, to arranging those molecules in such a way 
that even information can be passed from one generation to the other. That's what happens with biology, you know? Like, I can imagine ancient, truly ancient times in which bacteria passed genetic information between themselves. Of course, like, we do that still, and bacteria still do that. But it's just... I don't know, to me, it's almost unimaginable how, how we could arise from that because the third epoch is the epoch of intelligence. Those molecules and those living things start to develop consciousness even. We start to develop um, the ability to recognize patterns, to remember stuff. As Ray says it, to sense, capture, and store information in our own brains and nervous systems then hang on there because Epic 4 is a little bit more recent. We are using our brains and thumbs to create technology, to create something that works for us, to create other sorts of intelligence even. You kind of see where this is going? Well, Epic 5 involves the fusion between ourselves and the technology we created. This is where the singularity begins. We will overcome our limitations by using the vastly greater capacity, speed, and knowledge-sharing ability of technology. Because if you think about it, we are already doing so. We are using our cell phones to overcome our physical limitations, to communicate with other people. That's crazy. And finally, the heat death of the universe. Probably, hopefully not. But the last epoch is the aftermath of the singularity. It's when intelligence will begin to saturate matter to spread out from its origin on Earth. I don't know about you, but for me, this sounds like a beautiful thing to see. And let me explain this further, because sometimes these concepts, and also being a summary of the book, can be kind of, I don't know, tricky to understand. Sometimes it's just like a blah, 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 lots of words that don't really make sense. So to me, um, I'll explain from Epoch 5. So for me, Epoch 5 is what I've just told you. We are creating technologies that are that could be even more advanced than ourselves. I think that the best example for this is artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is being like, it's simulating our brains, our intelligence, to do things that sometimes we cannot do, to recognize patterns in a much faster way. You see? And Epoch 6 is about creating more and more technology. The pace of progress is accelerating itself so much that everything we know will come to life. With nanotechnology, for example, nanotechnology is working with things at the nanoscale. It's working with matter, with atoms. That means that we are arranging matter in such a way that it'll do interesting things. It will no longer be random. You know, like atoms right now, sometimes arrange, I mean, they have loss. There are loss of chemistry in the universe, etc. But they are, we, we can't control them. There, there is a certain extent to which we have no control. But with nanotechnology, for example, we will be able to take control over matter. We will be able to arrange it in such a way that it becomes intelligent, that it does what we cannot do that it allows us to overcome our limitations, to solve problems. That's what I think Ray means by saturating the universe with intelligence. 
hopefully you can notice by my voice that this topic really gets me excited. And I hope I, I can transmit not only my excitement, but also the knowledge, the great knowledge that, the book, that this book contains. So now, talking about knowledge, let's talk about the actual technologies that are going to allow us to saturate matter with intelligence. The first one is 3D computation. Now you must be asking yourselves, Sophia, what do you mean 3D computation? Like my laptop is not a 2D object. Well, no, but what we mean by 3D computation is not working with zeros and ones, but actually working with things such as molecules, with things such as DNA. Some other examples of 3D computation are nanotubes and nanocircuits that self-assemble, Spintronics, which is computing with the spin of electrons, and computing with light, as well as quantum computing. From my humble point of view, Spintronics sounds like the most interesting of um, 3D computational technologies. And here's why. I have a question for you. How smart can a rock be? I'm literally talking about a rock, like one that you can find in nature, in the street, whatever. Well, if we organize the particles in that rock in a purposeful manner, we could have a zero energy consuming computer with a memory of about a thousand trillion trillion bits and a processing capacity of about 10 trillion times more powerful than all human brains on Earth. How does that sound like? Well, to me, it sounds like the universe taking life. <laughs> But, you know, according to Ray, nanotubes are actually the most promising shift because working at the nano scale sounds maybe more interesting, although like spintronics is also kind of at the nano scale, even at the pico scale, pico scale, I don't know. Um, but yeah, the thing is that it may be, uh, we may see nano computing sooner than spintronics. Now, in terms of specific breakthroughs, so there's one example that Ray gives in the book, and it is molecular photography. He says that scientists at the University of Oklahoma stored more than a thousand bits of information in a single liquid crystal molecule comprising 19 hydrogen atoms. <laughs> so yeah, I guess that's the power of working with 3D computing. Technology number two, I'm sure that y'all are gonna be incredibly excited about this one. It has to do with brains. <laughs> so some facts about the brain, if you agree with me, is that number one, you can't share information that easily as computers do. Number two, like our brain circuits are very slow compared to computer circuits but they're very parallel as well. So we can kind of think of a lot of things at the, at the same time, think of a lot of details, if you may um, see like that. Number three, most of the details in the brain are random and intelligence arises from chaos. This is what we were talking about earlier on, like we come from molecules, then we come from, let's say, less intelligent beings. So like, where did intelligence arise from? Where did it come from? I have no idea. <laughs> but in terms of breakthroughs, some methods have been developed to non-invasively fire the neurons of the human brain. These include nanobots that could be the size of a blood cell or smaller. 
That sounds absolutely brain-blowing to me, if you understand what I'm talking about. Because, like, what are the ethical implications of this? Can we actually control other people's thoughts? Can we control animals' thoughts or something similar? Well, one key learning from the book that has more to do with artificial intelligence is that we will have to merge ourselves with technology if we want to keep up with it. We can't really fight with technology because we created it in, in, in such a way that it'll overcome our limitations. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to just want to be better than technology ourselves if we don't merge with it, you know, if we don't use it to our advantage. I think that for brain-computer interfaces, this is very clear. People say that in the near future, we're going to be able to download skill sets to directly to our brains with this technology, or at least be able to communicate sort of in a telepathical way with other people. And yeah, that just sounds like an interesting future. But continuing with the brain, another important lesson that I got from both Yuval Noah Harari's books and Ray Kurzweil's book is that we still need to learn a ton about the brain. Our brains could sometimes seem too complex for us to understand, but I think that, uh, yeah, at least we should try, right? Understanding, because understanding the brain will allow us to create better computers, which will also allow us to make progress and to overcome the world's biggest problems or limitations and so on. An interesting quote that I found in the book is the increasing pace in the velocity at which we reverse engineer the brain, lets us see that there are no limits to understanding ourselves and in understanding anything else for that matter. Now, another innovation that I guess all of us are excited for is somehow uploading our consciousness or uploading our minds, our thoughts, our brains to a computer to the cloud. And I guess that's the reason why I also like this book is because it doesn't only talk to you about the technology itself or how crazy that would be, but the limitations that we have. And an interesting question that I have for you is how quickly can we and should we scan the nervous system in order to upload ourselves or our brains to a computer? So let me explain that. Ray says that ourselves, we, we are the arrangement of matter, right? That's what we saw with the epochs. We, we are matter, we are atoms arranged in a beautiful way. So these atoms and this matter are constantly changing. And so the person who we are right now, like in this precise second, is no longer the same as the person that I will be in the next five minutes because things will happen. I will react to my environment and the environment will shape me. So <laughs> taking that into account, if we were to scan the nervous system, would we like would the computer be conscious? Would would the ones and zeros that are our consciousness be conscious? <laughs> Let me rephrase that. I sometimes get things messed up myself. So if we try to upload our thoughts to a computer, would that be us? Would that mind be really us or just a perfect copy of who we were in the pre precise moment that we were scanned? 
Because as Ray says, even if that sequence of ones and zeros can pass a Turing test and behave like us, one could still reasonably ask if it's the same person or even a new person. Overall, I think these are some really interesting questions and ones that we will definitely have to answer as we go through the process of the singularity. But I guess that we can also get a little bit lost, you know, because there are just so many technologies like quantum computing, synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, robotics, alternative energy, virtual reality. Like, how do we know which ones are truly going to make the most impact? Are they all gonna do it? Well, Ray says that there are three revolutions that we should all look after. He calls them GNR, genomics, nanotechnology, and robotics. These are kind of stated in order. So first we will have, we are already having the genomics revolution. Then we will see a nanotechnology revolution. And finally, a robotics revolution. Now, from a general public perspective, I would say that actually robotics came first and that we are actually seeing more of robotics today than we are seeing of uh, genomics, right? But the thing is that we are living inside of a biotechnology revolution, in my opinion. And, you know, that's kind of the topic that I'm most interested in, which is the reason why I can tell that uh, we are seeing things such as sequencing the genome for less than a thousand dollars. We can see things like storing data into DNA, things like editing the genome to cure diseases like sickle cell anemia or cystic fibrosis. And so I don't think that a lot of people are talking about that, unfortunately. But what Ray says is um, that we're going to use this revolution to cure diseases, fight aging, and unveil the secrets of life using technologies such as synthetic biology, gene editing, and genetic sequencing. Just as important, though, there are some challenges of this revolution that we've already become quite aware of, right? The best example of this is the pandemic that is taking place just as I am recording this episode. Some specific examples of biotech innovations are simulating molecular and atomic interactions. So we understand how DNA impacts our bodies or health and therefore create more pre precise drugs with little side effects. Another one that Ray is particularly into is the aggressive use of all knowledge we have to dramatically slow down aging. In short, Mr. Kurzweil is taking action to maybe try to live forever. At the time of writing the book, he was 56 years old and his biological age was of 40 years old. He says that to do that, he takes 250 supplement pills every day and receives six intravenous therapies each week. <laughs> so I guess that um, trying to make it to the singularity is being a hustle, but who knows, it probably pays off, right? <laughs> 
Again, if you are more interested in knowing what's coming up for biotechnology, all these innovations, living forever, editing our DNA, and so on, then I recommend that you check out the episode with Josiah Zayner. He is a biohacker recognized internationally. He has a company called The Odin that sells genetic engineering kits online. And I just really enjoyed that talk. So please go check it out if you haven't already. And let's continue with nanotechnology. Kurzweil says that nanotechnology is actually the second step. It's kind of a more advanced science than biotechnology, but it also lags a little bit behind biotech by about a decade. He says that the N revolution will allow us to redesign and rebuild molecule per molecule. Just as we were mentioning earlier, the next technology or the next revolution is going to solve the problems that the previous revolution created. So we were talking about viruses or pandemics with biology. Then we could kind of see a future where nanotechnology controls that, you know? And some specific innovations, again, to pay attention to are electronics and mechanical technologies going nano, carbon nanotubes, nanorobotics, nanomedicine, quantum dots, molecule printing, and nanomaterials. Things that we gotta be careful with. Nanotechnology brings the threat of non-biological self-replicating entities. Kind of nanobots taking over the earth. That sounds scary. <laughs> and you know, just to close with the topic of nanotech, I I am a really, you know, biotech biased person because I love biotech. And I had all of these questions about like, why is nanotech more advanced than biotech? Well, Ray answered my questions in a pretty concise and great way. Number one, because nanobots will be thousands of times more stable and precise than blood cells or, or bacteria simply because of the materials with which they are made. Number two, unlike our biological immune system, if you don't like what nanobots are doing, you can just tell them. Like, I imagine um, even smartphones, right, that connect with our nanobots. And number three, because, yeah, materials will be stronger, what I mentioned earlier. Now, the ultimate technology, the ultimate revolution for the 21st century, or actually, for the first half of the 21st century, according to Ray Kurzweil, the engineer and inventor is artificial intelligence, AI. You may have already heard about it because it's just everywhere, literally everywhere in Netflix, diagnosing diseases, preventing, um, predicting things, predicting stock market prices, and so on. But I have a question for Ray. He says that he actually called the revolution robotics instead of artificial intelligence or something similar because he says that intelligence needs embodiment, which would be the case of artificial intelligence being embodied in robotics. I don't think that this always needs to be the case, but still, he says that R represents the most profound transformations since intelligence is the most powerful asset in the universe. It's also important to keep in mind that the art revolution is about creating non-biological intelligence that exceeds that of unenhanced humans. Hence the importance of the two previous revolutions, 
merging ourselves with other technologies. So when the time comes for artificial intelligence to be incredibly smart, well, we are a little bit prepared. A really interesting breakthrough that I read about in the book was the AI scientist. That's the name that I gave it. It's not like an official thing or anything, but it was created by scientists at the University of Wales. It's basically a system that automates and creates hypotheses based on observations. Then it does experiments with robotics, interprets them, and learns from those results with artificial intelligence. It finally repeats the process. Does it sound familiar? That's what scientists do. Basically, these scientists created a replacement for themselves. And they reported that working with AI and robotics as scientists was three times less expensive than doing experiments with human scientists. To wrap up with artificial intelligence or robotics, we can protect ourselves against nanotech infections with fully developed robotics. And we can protect ourselves against viruses with fully developed nanotechnology. But what will protect us from pathological intelligence that exceeds our own? I don't know. I have no idea. But you know, I am confident that we'll figure this out, just as we've done it in the past. Last but not least, I actually think that one of the most impactful parts of the book was how to embrace the habits, beliefs, ideas, and mindsets of a person living during the singularity, during this amazing period in which matter will be saturated with intelligence and everything will come to life. Of course, those are my words, like paraphrasing what Ray says. The actual main takeaways of being a singularitarian are the following. Number one, understand that our bodies are temporary. We are this bunch of particles that are constantly changing and our pattern itself, like our particles, turn over almost completely every single month. It is only the pattern of our bodies and brains which has continuity. Number two, only technology can help us defeat the world's biggest problems. In other words, to solve the world's biggest problems, we need hard tech. We need the world's most advanced technologies, meaning nanotechnology, biotechnology, robotics. Remember, GNR. Number three, knowledge is precious in all its forms. And so any loss of knowledge is tragic. Let me explain this with the fourth point. Death is also tragic, since it is depressing to think of a person only as a pattern that is lost when they die. If we think about all of this from the dataism point of view, as I was saying at the beginning, we are patterns of information. We are patterns of molecules that have arranged in this beautiful way to create knowledge, to bring intelligence to the universe, or to make, actually, to make the universe become intelligence, become knowledge. 
And so what if this pattern is, is suddenly lost? What if the beautiful pattern of a human is lost? Then that's tragic. This is why we need to take action, use the latest technologies like longevity technologies, like gene editing, like quantum computing even, in order to defeat this world problem. To introduce the next point, I would like to have as a side note that what I, while I was reading this book, I was wondering, like, the singularity sounds amazing. It sounds like the ultimate purpose of, I don't know, human existence in the 21st century. Or, you know, it's just part of the process, part of the process of saturating matter with intelligence, which is a phrase that I like a lot. But anyways, even when this all sounds just astonishing, I also, I don't know, everything will happen incredibly quickly. And I don't know if we're ready for it, you know? I don't know if I'm personally ready to leave all those changes that are going to happen in the world, to experience the heat death of the universe, for example. And so I was wondering, even though we as humans have enough intelligence, we, we have this pattern in a correct way in order to evolve, in order to create machines, right? We, we have enough resources in order to, to make the singularity happen, for example. But the point is, we also have, or at least I believe we have the decision to choose. We, we have the right to choose. We have the ability to choose. <laughs> and so what if we chose not to make progress, regardless of all the economic impact that it should have. What if we chose to, I don't know, <laughs> it sounds kind of weird, but to live just happily with what we have and with the progress we've made. I know this is impossible. I know that all of a sudden the world's not gonna stop and say like, let's live happily ever after and let's not continue making progress because that's scary. That is not going to happen. Well, in a hypothetical situation, what if, what if it did? What if we just stopped doing it? And so Ray's question, is, Ray's answer actually, is, well, you wouldn't solve the world's biggest problems. And the world's biggest problems cause suffering. Suffering for people who have cancer, who have other diseases, suffering for the environment because of global warming, for species, and a bunch of other things. So I find it ironic that the progress that we've made so far has somehow taken us to, to some world problems. Like some technologies ca have caused problems and then we need more technology to solve more problems. And that'll be the cycle, you know? until we hopefully find a balance, until we hopefully find sustainability. But yeah, in short, number point number five for living in the singularity is understanding that even small delays in implementing emerging technologies can condemn millions of people to continued suffering and death. And remember, death is, well, a tragedy. Point number six. We don't need religions that are centered around death during the singularity. 
the explosion of art, science, and other forms of knowledge will make life more than bearable. They will make life truly meaningful. I know that this point is highly controversial, and I also like uh, you know to link this book a lot with Yuval Noah Harari's thoughts. Um, and I have other podcast episodes about it if you want to check them out. But yeah, the point is that I I really agree with the idea that regardless of your beliefs on how the universe or life started, we can be sure that religion is also a way, uh, an amazing way to organize civilizations, to organize people. What will happen when we make so much progress that the ideas and beliefs of these religions become obsolete. The idea of death, for example. If you think about it, the majority of religions, if not all of them, are centered around the idea of death. They kind of try to give meaning to life by giving importance to death, you know? And so what will happen when we reach some sort of immortality, some sort of living indefinitely, thanks to all these technologies? Will these religions remain, you know, updated? Or will we have to create other ones that are centered rather around art, science, and knowledge overall to make life truly meaningful by itself, you know, not having it to depend on something else. Number eight and last point that I consider to be important for you to thrive in the singularity is the purpose of the universe reflects the same purpose as our lives, to move toward greater intelligence and knowledge. I would call that to transcend. And a quote, once we saturate the matter and energy in the universe with intelligence, it will wake up, be conscious and sublimely intelligent. That's about as close to God as I can imagine. Thank you so much for getting to the end of this episode. I know that it was a little bit longer than I actually expected it to be, but I also think that there are a lot of there's a lot of knowledge that you can get out of this episode. And it's made really for everyone who just want to keep themselves up, updated on the latest technologies and on the latest beliefs around science and around the future. Raker is like he's super legit. And this is not the only book he's written, so he, he's written many other ones like How to Create a Mind, or The Age of Intelligent, or Spiritual Machines. Um, Danielle, The Chronicles of a Superheroine, and many others that I will definitely, that will definitely be in my list for this year, hopefully. And so yeah, I guess that now that you know that the singularity is near and that you know that it's going to be incredibly exciting, then let's live this journey together, you know? Let's go through it, let's learn, let's prepare ourselves 
And what better way to do it than learning from the youngest innovators in terms of blockchain, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, biotechnology, virtual reality, augmented reality, and many other exponential technologies. This is what 2045 is about. So I really can't wait to see you, to talk with you. If you want to even nominate yourself to speak at this podcast, to share knowledge, if you want to nominate someone else, if you want to follow us at 2045 Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, you are more than welcome. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the year 2045.